0: find ourselves this morning in 1 Peter, once again, 1 Peter chapter 1, and I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to that text. It's once again a joy to be able to minister the Word of God to you this morning. And it is my prayer that by the power of the Holy Spirit... He will accomplish His purposes in your heart. Certainly my goal in preaching to you is to reestablish the supremacy of God in the throne of your life because all week long you've had the world to try to tear that down, to try to erect other gods in your life. And so I pray this morning that through the preaching of His Word, the Spirit of God will display and magnify His glory as we consider our duty as well as our desire to manifest an undying love for the brethren which is the title of my words to you this morning 1 Peter chapter 1 follow along as i read verses 22 through 25 since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls For a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. As we have studied Peter's epistle thus far, we've seen that his doxology of praise to the suffering saints concerning the nature of their salvation, combined with the practical exhortations that call us to a higher level of holy living in our daily lives now really transitions to yet another very logical, yet fitting admonition. And that is for us as believers to strive for an undying love for the brethren, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I would ask you from the outset, do you really love your brothers and sisters in Christ? You don't need to literally look around the room, but in your mind's eye, look around in this room and say, do I really love those that are part of my church family here at Calvary Bible Church? And of course, the question is, what do you mean by love? And God has made that very clear. Scripture teaches that love is certainly a manifestation of our faith in him, the second great commandment is to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. And we love ourselves very dearly, do we not? Of course, the first commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Scripture teaches us that love is a call to generous, sacrificial service to others in the body of Christ. Especially, Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, to those who are of the household of faith. In 1 John 3.23, we read that this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. Love is literally a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that will naturally spring forth off of the vine of one who is truly born again. And it is manifested, the Bible tells us, in brotherly kindness, in meaningful and purposeful involvement in the lives of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that how you love your church family? You see, true Christian love for other Christians, I believe, is way beyond a casual hello on Sunday morning. A casual shaking of the hand, and boy, it's good to see you again. And even it's beyond occasionally sharing a meal with another brother or sister in Christ. And what's tragic in some churches, and perhaps even here, there are times where we come to church and we don't take time to shake hands with anybody. We don't really care that much about others around us, others in our family, because after all, we've got other more pressing matters to tend with. Maybe our children or seeing one of our closest friends. And oh, yes, we must hurry and make it to the restaurant in time to get a seat. And unfortunately, in some cases, not only is there no attempt to get to know one another and to truly love one another but there's really no desire to do so. The question would be then, how can you really love someone if you never take time to even get to know them? The Word of God tells us that love is to be exhibited in ministering to those who are physically sick. Visiting the sick. Literally going to see them. In Romans 12, 15, we also read that love is rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. How often does that happen with you among your brothers and sisters in Christ? It also includes supporting the weak who struggle with sin. Oh my, Pastor, now we're getting to a whole new level of love. In Galatians 6, too, it talks about how that we are to help restore one another in the spirit of gentleness. That's love. How often does that go on in your loving relationships with the brethren? It also includes in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, warning the unruly, comforting the faint-hearted, upholding the weak, and being patient with all men. You see, dear friends, love begins to take on a meaning far beyond the kind of superficial Cavalier kind of love that is indicative, sadly, even of many Christians. Love also includes covering the faults of others with a forbearing spirit. Ephesians 4 2 says that we are to love each other with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another. And in verse 32, it goes on to say, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You see, dear friends, the Word of God tells us that love is really the evidence of selflessness. It's even the evidence of being in the light, the Scripture tells us, being born again. In fact, it is a distinguishing characteristic of a disciple of Christ. Jesus said in John 13:35, "By this all will know that you are my disciples if you what? If you love one another." Bottom line, loving one another is a mark of genuine saving faith. In fact, in 1 John 3:14, we read, "We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren." He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now, folks, this is very clear. This does not take some great scholar to figure out what the Spirit of God is telling us here. He's literally saying those who call themselves Christians yet want nothing to do with their spiritual family are simply not saved. 1 John 3.10 We read, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Here it is. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And the love used there, as in other passages, is a love that is not a love of abstraction, but a love of action. It's not some warm fuzzy that we think we have in our heart but it's literally rolling up our sleeves and getting involved in the lives of other people that are a part of our family. Indeed, Scripture is clear. There is no evidence of genuine saving faith in those who call themselves Christians, yet have no desire to be a part of a fellowship of believers. The same is true for those who may have attached themselves in some superficial way to the church, but yet refuse to have any involvement in the lives of their church family. Those that just kind of show up occasionally and then disappear. Call yourself what you might, but you are not a Christian if that is indicative of your life. Because that is not loving the brethren. Now, some will argue, oh yes, pastor, I, I, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but you must understand, I, I, I just don't have time to be around them with my busy schedule. I, f- frankly, that really can't be a priority. I, I have my family. I have my job. Indeed, I have my hobbies. Well, excuse me, but imagine telling that to your wife on the day you marry her. Sweetheart, I want you to know that I truly love you, but you must understand that I'm not going to have time to spend with you. I I, I really don't want you to think that I need to be getting to know you more or that that I'm expected to do that. Uh, Please don't think that I'm going to have time to be involved in your life because I have other pressing priorities. My friend, if this is you, I plead with you to examine your heart this morning. For I fear that you perhaps have deceived yourself with a very damning lie. How different this is from the first century church. For example, in Acts 2 and verse 46, we read that they were continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. How different from the words that we read in 1 John 5, beginning in verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And... Whoever loves the father, now catch this, loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Well, some words of introduction that perhaps gets you to think about your own heart and your own love for the brethren. Well, of course, the inspired apostle Understood the importance of an undying love for the brethren with the first century saints. They were being persecuted. And the suffering was only going to mount. Their children were going to be tortured in front of their eyes. They were going to be thrown into arenas where wild beasts would eat them. There were going to be atrocities committed upon them that were mind-boggling. And so it was crucial for their survival, as indeed it is for ours, dear friends, in those days of barbaric persecution, for them to understand the importance of truly loving one another. So he reminds them of the glories of their redemption, as we've been studying, and the marvels of their inheritance And certainly those who understand the staggering implications of their salvation will have little problem in loving one another. For indeed, our love for others will be in direct proportion to our love for God who has lavished His love upon us. Andrew Murray has said it well, and I quote, Our love to God is measured by our everyday fellowship with others and the love it displays. And of course, selfishness and pride will always be the enemies of love. If loving your church family in ways God has delineated in His Word is simply not a priority for you for whatever reason, then again, I would ask you to ask yourself if you are truly in faith. If you truly know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if not being loving is a pattern of your life, you're probably not saved. But if it is only an occasional pattern, as I fear it is for all of us at times, then we want to examine the carnality in our life, the fleshliness of our selfish pride, because I fear that we have forgotten the undeserved love that we have received in our salvation. And that's the point. Of all that Peter is bringing to bear here in this text. So I, may I challenge you each to be brutally honest in evaluating your love for the brethren in light of your love for God and His love for us. Peter's call here to love in verses 22 through 25 can be divided into three very practical categories for us to consider. Let me give them to you. We're going to see the source of our love the object of our love, and the extent of our love. The source, object, and extent of our love. First of all, notice the source of our love in verse 22. It says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. Literally, what he's saying, since you have in obedience to the truth, in other words, since you have responded to the truth of the gospel and since you have been saved and therefore purified your souls, literally referring to that transforming power of the Spirit of God, which, by the way, grammatically here is an ongoing, continuing process. It's not something that happened just once back there, and now that process is over with. It is something that continues to occur. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. You see, folks, herein is the source of our love. Peter is describing the miracle of the new birth. Now, please understand this. This is when, in response to the truth of our sinful condition and in the brokenness of our heart, when we cry out to God in faith for undeserved mercy and grace, God forgives us. And when that happens, the Word tells us that He makes us new creatures in Christ. In fact, Peter said in verse 2 of chapter 1, it's by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with His blood. So there's this miraculous cleansing, purging from sin. Scriptures tell us that we are then made to walk in newness of life. You see, salvation, you must understand, is a miraculous ongoing process whereby the Spirit of God is little by little transforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, 2, we read, Beloved, now we are children of God. Okay, Right now, we are children of God. But he goes on to say, And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. So in other words, there's a tension between who we are and what we will be. Then he says, We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. So in other words, at Christ's return, this process will be completed and we will be conformed into his likeness. And what that will be, we're not fully sure. Certainly, we will not become God. We will not become deity. But to whatever degree we can be conformed conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be. Now, I say all of this to remind you of the source of our love because we have a transformation that is in process that empowers us to love as Christ has asked us to love. That's the point. In fact, later in 2 Peter 1.3, we're told that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Of course, that would include the ability to love our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. He goes on to say that we have been made partakers of the divine nature, Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Can you imagine that? What an amazing thought to think that God has implanted a divine nature into his children. We have what I like to call a supernatural DNA. A divine nature. Somehow that rings true for me. Maybe that will help you remember that. We have a supernatural DNA. The royal blood now flows through our veins. When we are saved, we become, shall we say, spiritual descendants of the King of Kings. In fact, later Peter will elaborate on this very concept in verse 23. He says, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. Now, friends, herein is the source of our love. And if you have a very difficult time loving, as I am indicating to you that the Spirit of God would have us love, then once again we must ask, has this transformation begun in your heart? Do you truly know Christ? Because one of the most striking and observable results of this utter transformation of the inner man is our ability to obey God and to love others as He loves us. That's the capacity that we have as new creatures in Christ. Once again, Important for us to understand that genuine saving faith is always validated by our willing obedience to the truth that is found in the word of God. Not necessarily some past profession of faith or some water baptism or whatever it might have been. In fact, in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3, we read, By this we know that we have come to know Him. What is it? if we keep His commandments. He goes on to say, the one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His Word in Him, the love of God has truly been perfected. And think of the power this has on non-believers when they see that kind of love. Not the phony superficial stuff that is indicative of our world today. You see, you stop and think about it. The vast majority of unsaved people live in a world, and of course we all live in this, but all, that, all they're used to experiencing is, is really um, perpetual conflict. They're, they're dealing all the time with liars and thieves and, and gossipers and slanderers and immoral people with eyes full of adultery, as the Word tells us control freaks, hotheads, and on and on it goes. And unfortunately, sometimes that stuff slithers into the church and finds a seat. But think what it's like for people of the world who do not know the love of Christ to suddenly experience believers that truly love one another as the Word would have us love and truly manifest a sincere love of the brethren. My, what a confusing experience that is for them. One that can draw them to the love of Christ. I remember once a woman that came to this church. She was not a Christian. And over a period of time, she came to Christ. And you began to see everything from her dress to her demeanor be changed. She was married to a man that was not a believer. And... He was absolutely baffled by the change in his life. He was confused over her love for him and for others. She understood the first Peter three concept of being submissive to a husband that may not be a believer and try to win them without a word so that to allow them to be able to see, as I believe that text says, you the, the chaste and, and respectful behavior, not the external preoccupation of clothing and body, but the internal qualities of a godly character. She began to manifest that. As Peter says, the, the hidden qualities of the heart, that imperishable quality of a gentle, quiet spirit that's precious in the sight of God, and so on. He began to see that. Eventually, I remember, I'll never forget, it. he came into the church. And I could tell when he came in, he was very, very cautious. Very, very guarded. And he looked about half mad. And he sat down. And as the story goes, over a period of months, he gradually began to get to know people in the church. And eventually, I'll never forget it, he was sitting back over there, and during the time of a communion, you could see that the Spirit of God was working in his heart. And even after the close of the service, he sat there and he sobbed as he gave his heart to Christ. And later on, he gave his testimony And when asked, what were some of the things that God used to bring you to a saving knowledge of himself? I will never forget a couple of the things that he said, a couple of examples. And of course, they centered around true, sincere Christian love. One was a time when he went with the men and the boys to go fishing, a men's retreat of sorts. And I remember that day, he didn't want to fish. He just kind of walked around and observed. And I remember asking him, don't you want to fish? And he said, no, I, I just want to watch. And I thought, well, that's curious. But I didn't say anything. Well, didn't, little did I know that the Spirit of God was using that scenario to confuse him with a love that he had never seen before in his life. Men with men, brothers in Christ, fathers with sons, sons with fathers, grandfathers, and on and on it goes. And he also described a time when he went over to a home where there were a group of families. We got together and invited this couple over. And again, he was very guarded when he came. And he described later on after he came to Christ that scenario And he said with tears in his eyes, the first time he he told me this, I'll never forget it, he said the thing that absolutely blew me away, was his verbiage, was that that whole time no one hit on my wife. You see, folks, that's the type of stuff that the world is used to. And when they see true, genuine Christian love, it is powerful. And God uses that to bring people to a saving knowledge of himself. How sad to see the opposite of love, especially among the saints. So again, the source of our love is inherent in the power of of faith and obedience, that transforming power of the word of God in our life. And the object of our love is certainly the Lord, our God and our neighbors, especially fellow, fellow Christians. But thirdly, the extent of our love is found here in verse 22. He says that we are to love fervently, fervently love one another from the heart. Folks, this is far more than the casual, superficial love that is characteristic of most Christians, even within many churches. And again, I fear the sting of the lash falls upon all of our backs here. Fervently, in the original language, it means earnestly. It means zealously, seriously, ardently. It is a term that is literally used to describing someone straining with all of their might to do something of great importance. It's a term used to describe one that is stretching their muscles to the furthest limit of its ability. In Luke 22, verse 44... We see this word fervently used of the Lord Jesus in the garden. It says, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently. You get the idea? And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Folks, that's how we are to love one another. Fervently. The term was also used in Acts 12.5. There we read, Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. Unfortunately our culture knows little of this kind of straining either physically or spiritually being proverbial couch potatoes on both accounts the beloved this is the way we are to love one another and this is not some perfunctory love to be taken lightly nor it is nor is it a, a love that can be conjured up by the human will apart from divine enablement, but rather this is the passionate love of of, of self-sacrifice, an attitude of self-sacrificial involvement in the lives of others. And that is a fruit of the new nature, a fruit of the Holy Spirit as we read in Galatians 5. And again, he says fervently love one another from the heart. Love, it's from that word that you're familiar with from Agapao in the original language. This is the love of choice. This is the love that we can even have for an enemy. This is not the love of emotion. One commentator put it this way. This is the love which is exercised by the will rather than emotion, not determined by the beauty or desirability of the object, but by the noble intention of the one who loves. again John 13:34 Jesus commands us to love one another even as I have loved you and he goes on to say by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another and what was the extent of our lord's love for us well of course it was the unremitting undeserving love whereby he sacrificed himself for us he gave his very life again in John 15 verse 12 this is my commandment he said that you love one another just as I have loved you greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends now again dear friends is this the kind of fervent love that you have for your church family for your brothers and sisters in Christ here at Calvary Bible Church and other places? Do do you really fervently love each other from the heart? The heart, by the way, is a reference to the inner man, the wellspring of life, as Proverbs 4.23 says. It is the very core of who we are. Do you manifest a love without hypocrisy? a, a, A love that is intense that is unremitting in its affection. One that can be measured by your actions, by your involvement in the lives of others. Because your heart has been transformed by the power of God and you are yielded to the truth and humble obedience. Fervently love one another from the heart. Again, I fear the weight of such a solemn charge Breaks the backs of the words that bear it. How shallow is our love for one another. And I became increasingly convicted of this even in my own life as I lived with these texts over the last several months. Ask yourself, for whom in this room would you lay down your life other than your family? Boy, suddenly that puts love at a whole new level, does it not? Most will not lay down their time, much less their life. You see, God's standard for love far exceeds what is typically evidenced in the lives of believers. Peter goes on to explain why we are to love each other with such zeal in verses 23-25. through He says, For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. You see, here we have a powerful analogy that Peter uses to underscore the the power we possess to love one another to this extent. And it's because we have been born again. It's the miracle of the new birth. Again, may I remind you, this is in the perfect tense. It means that there was a past action with continuing results. We have been given a new nature, a new life, one that cannot die, nor can we choose to kill it. You see, implied here is a contrast between two births which produce two different kinds of lives. Now think of this. First of all, there is the mystery of the physical birth, a process of in unimaginable complexity that still boggles the minds of biologists. But how much greater the mystery of the new birth, the new birth, when we are born of the Spirit. Remember in John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he went on to describe the uncontrollable and mysterious power, that quickening, regenerating power of the Spirit of God and salvation. In verse 8, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So, is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, even as in physical birth, a new person is created in spiritual birth, in the spiritual new birth. And Think about this now. In the spiritual new birth, even like the physical birth, there emerges an infant child. In the spiritual birth, it is a child of God that resembles the characteristics of his or her Father, her Heavenly Father. Suddenly we are made new creatures in Christ and the old things pass away. We're given a new heart, a new mind, a new song, the Word tells us. You see, the old corruption of the sin nature that was passed on by our physical parents is now gone. And in place of that, we are given a new nature, one that is born of God. One that is dead to sin. Oh, indeed, we still sin, but not because we have to, because we're slaves of it, but because, unfortunately, in our stupidity and in our rebellion, we choose to. While the old flesh remains, it no longer reigns because we have been born again, as Peter says, into a living hope. Furthermore, when you think about it, like an infant child must grow And develop mentally and physically and spiritually and even emotionally. We see in the spiritual new birth, a saint must grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. But unlike unregenerate earthly children that can at times ultimately grow in corruption. And shatter the hopes and joys of their parents heart. Please understand That the new creation in Christ, the new creature in Christ, is supernaturally endowed with all that he or she needs to ultimately grow into the glorious perfection of the God who fathered him. And how often we witness the miracle of that new birth and we see drunkards and homosexuals and thieves and murderers and on and on it goes gain victory over some life dominating sin. We see hell raisers become heaven praisers. We see the radical transformation, and the world stands back in amazement when they witness this. And certainly one of the greatest characteristics of this new creature in Christ is their ability and their desire to love their father and to love the rest of their family. This is a solemn matter, by the way, for all of us to consider. We all must be born again, regardless of how religious or moral we think we may be. You see, the inside has to be changed, not just the outside. In fact, Jesus told the very proud and religious Pharisee Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And again, when the new nature is born, a new creation emerges. One that reflects the characteristics of Christ's likeness. One that can love another one fervently from the heart. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Ephesians 4, verse 24. There we read that when we are born again, we put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Oh, dear friends, the mystery, the wonder of the new birth, of being born again. Notice in verse 23, he says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. And once again now, we have a contrast between human seed and divine seed. Seed, of course, uh, depicting the source or the basis of one's life. Now here's the point, and you will readily grasp this. Every seed in the plant and the animal world that God has created is subject to the curse. And as a result of that, that seed will ultimately die. But not so. The seed, the divine seed, that is supernaturally infused into born-again sinners. You see, friends, that seed will never die. Our seed, he says here, is imperishable. In the original language, it means it is incorruptible. It cannot be affected by decay. It is not subject to destruction. And I would hasten to add that this truth deals a death blow along with many other scriptures, to the Arminian error that would have us believe that one could lose their salvation. That somehow man's will remains free after salvation and therefore has the power to reject the grace once bestowed. How can this be if the new nature never dies? My Bible says that it is imperishable. Folks, we could not create that new seed, that new nature, so how on earth do we think we could extinguish it? And again, we must understand that the Holy Spirit indwells us when we are born again, and therefore perpetually for the rest of our lives and eternity infuses us with spiritual life. The Word of God says we are born again unto eternal life. Born again, present tense. I should say perfect tense. It means past action, continuing results, as I said earlier. Well, notice furthermore, the inspired apostle's reasoning for the permanence of our new nature. He says in verse 23, you have been born again, not of seed, which is imperishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. In other words, friends, because we are born of God, Our newborn spirit that is now united to Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit is imperishable. Why? Because it originated, look at the text, through the living and enduring Word of God. So the point is this, even as God and His Word endures forever, likewise we who have been given new life through God and His Word will endure forever. That's the glorious truth. That is ours. James 1.18, James describes this incredible divine act of regeneration through the power of His Word. There he says, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the Word of Truth. He brought us forth by the Word of Truth. Why? So that we would be a kind of firstfruits among His creatures. Firstfruits among His creatures literally means the first evidence of God's new creation, a preview of the new life that will ultimately be manifested in the realms of glory. And then to add even more reinforcement to this truth of the permanence of the new nature infused by God through the Word, in contrast to the perishable nature of all other life, Peter reaches back into the Old Testament. He reaches back to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 and 8. And there, if we were to go back there, we would see how Isaiah elaborates on the transience of of all human and animal and plant life. That life is just here today and gone tomorrow. Notice in verse 24, Peter says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever forever. And here's the point, dear friends, and you will find great comfort here. All human life, whether it's ordinary life like the grass or noticeable and grand like the flower, all of it will ultimately wither and die. Whether you are a peasant or a prince, you are in a state of decay. And ultimately, you will disappear from the face of the earth. That's the point. In fact, in Psalm 103, verse 15, the psalmist says, As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. But when the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. So, friends, what Peter is saying here through Isaiah is reminding us that whether we never bloom, whether we're in our life like Common grass, or even if we bloom with great beauty like the flower and stand high above all others, all of the common folks, regardless, all of us will eventually shrivel up and die. But the magnificent reality for those of us who have been born again is that we have a seed which is not perishable but is imperishable. And so, like the imperishable. Living and enduring seed of the word of God, which Peter describes here, is the power source that God has used to cause us to be born again. Whether we are a peasant or a prince in our life, we will never die spiritually if we have been born again. That's the glorious truth of this. In fact, Peter likens us to the word of the Lord, which endures forever forever. And finally, he concludes this amazing call for Christians to be sincere and fervent in their love for one another by reminding us that this very word of the Lord that endures forever was, at the end of verse 25, the word which was preached to you. The word which was preached to you. Those of you that know Christ, this was the word. Here, by the way, the word word is rhema. It's not logos. Usually the term is logos referring to all of Scripture as a whole. But here it is rhema. And that term literally refers to a specific word or a specific statement of Scripture. And here it's referring to the actual gospel, the saving gospel of Christ. We know that because... He says the word which was preached to you, the word preached, then, it comes from euangelisthen, um, which means good news. We, you hear the word in Greek, it's euangelizo, which means uh, to share the good news. We get our word to evangelize from that. So what he's saying here is that the word which was preached to you, the specific word that was preached to you, namely the gospel, the good news of the gospel, That was proclaimed to you is what God has used to transform you. That is the word of the Lord, which endures forever. And by the regenerating power of the spirit of God, you believed that gospel, that specific word that was preached to you. And miraculously, you were born again and given an imperishable seed that will never wither and never die. Therefore, and here's the point of it all. Because of your new life in Christ, you have the capacity to love one another with a sincere and a fervent love like Christ loved us. So I challenge you to examine the extent of your love for the brethren. Is it a love that somehow could be compared to the things that are perishable? Things that are frail and that are dying? Or is it a love that can be likened to the imperishable seed of Your divine nature, a love that is sincere, that is fervent, that is from the heart, a love that is obedient to the admonitions of Scripture and consistent with the eternal power of the Gospel that the Spirit of God used to transform us. Oh, would that we all manifest that which we are capable of manifesting, namely, an undying love for the brethren. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that somehow these glorious truths will change our hearts. Lord, I pray that we will all examine ourselves because, Lord, we all fall far short here. And we thank You that we have a capacity to love that is far beyond what we typically use. So we would just cry out to You that by the power of Your Spirit, we will begin to implement things in our life to demonstrate the love of Christ, especially in the household of faith. And finally, Lord, I would pray for those who know nothing of the love of Christ, how I pray that You will convict them of their sin And may they in repentance run to you for salvation. And perhaps today will be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth in Christ. For it's in his name that I pray, with great joy and with great love. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, Or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olive tree resources dot org.